This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are the luminaries. As a staff writer for New York Magazine and Vulture, Abraham Reisman has taken on the dominant powers of the comic book entertainment complex and transitioned to writing about the annals of Israeli-Palestinian politics. Now, he embarks on his next great challenge as the author of the official Stan Lee biography. He joins me to talk about his career and his outsider sensibility. Abraham, welcome to the podcast. Oh. I am beyond delighted. To oh, be this is such a pleasure. I can't even tell you. I um, yeah, I think you're. If I were to list my my top ten favorite people, you're up. Oh, there. <laughs> stop! You say that to all the girls. <laughs> okay, well, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot I don't know about you. I don't really know. You occupy a very specific niche in terms of your writing, and I don't really know how you got there. Just to start with, sure, it's sort of a weird, circuitous path. Um, I did not grow up wanting to be a journalist or a writer. Um, I wanted to be an actor and then I got to college and realized I couldn't stand actors and I'm told it gets better. Like once you're out of college, actors kind of, the ones who aren't serious about it kind of whittle away and like the drama kind of goes away. I could be wrong. I I, have no idea. I don't know because I've met a lot of like 38 year olds in LA who are like talking about their craft, which to me it's like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. There was just like a lot of drama and I was like, you know what? I did all this all throughout high school. I don't need this anymore. So I thought I'd roll the dice and try something new. And, you know, the magic of going to a liberal arts college is there's all kinds of extracurriculars you can just sort of sign up for. And abruptly you're doing something. You're not getting paid for it, but you're learning about it. And so I tried out for the newspaper and ended up writing for the arts section uh, just because I felt like, you know, that was what I knew. And then uh, in the summers during college, I kind of stumbled into um, working in public radio. I worked at WBAI, which is now in terrible financial straits, but uh, was a, a real wonderful opportunity. I was doing audio stories for the evening news, um, even though I had no idea what I was doing. And then the next summer I worked at WNYC. Uh, I produced, uh, not produced, not solo, you know, I was a producer, uh, production intern on a, a couple of shows. And then I graduated and went to work at a newspaper that very conveniently went out of business three months after I started working there, the New York Sun, um, which uh, was a weird experience in a lot of ways. I learned a ton. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that they afforded me. I wish it had been paid. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, unpaid internships and journalism. Oh, yeah. They're um, But uh, got a lot out of that and then was expecting to get hired on a staff, and they promptly decided that they were no longer a going concern. And then in a great piece of timing, I believe a week after I found out that the place was going under, Uh, The entire global economy went under because this was 2008. So the financial collapse happened. I was out of a job and I got lucky in so far as I was able to find a piece of driftwood to climb onto, which was uh, writing copy for news anchors to read on New York One. I don't know how New York based your listenership is, but it's a local cable news station that's on 24 hours that was started kind of as like a mini CNN just for New York. And uh, I wrote anchor copy there as a freelancer for a while. Then I got bumped up to producing a weekly television series called One-on-One with Bud Mishkin, which was a profile and interview show about prominent and influential New Yorkers. It's, you know, that sounds like, I'm thinking about in um, The Dark Knight Returns, like the little TV panels. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking about like, it's very like Gotham News, like 
Bud Mishkin, and you're in the back. I like, know. I'm, the Riddler's back. I know. That was, oh, God, if only. No, it was, um, that was a fascinating experience for a lot of reasons. I had no idea how to do video or yeah. television at all. Um, they kind of just sort of threw me in the deep end, and I learned how to shoot and edit. Uh, but the real highlight was, you know, I was, it had its downsides. I was only like part time. I was only working four days a week and not making that much money, but I was able to pitch, uh, doing profiles of people that I found interesting. Um, that and happened with me at timeout where I was like, exactly, oh, right. I want to do this. So. I want to do this. So I'm going to do it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Bud, the host, I mean, the staff consisted of me and him. It was a very small operation and, uh, we, you know, the highlight for me, the entire two two years that I produced the show was uh, I we profiled your favorite and mine, Justin Vivian Bond, mm. um, who had not gotten much like, you know, local cable news coverage, I guess. And they were really excited about it. And it was just a magical experience. I remember, <laughs> I remember doing a B-roll shoot at their apartment. Um, after doing the initial interview, like a few days later, I went there just to shoot some like photos and stuff and they were just such a great conversationalist and we just had this long chat and, um, I was not like, you know, I, I don't know what you've said in the intro at this point, but I'm by, and I wasn't really out to myself or anybody at that point, but you know, I'm sure this is the 8 millionth time this has happened to Justin Vivian Bond, but I'm talking to them and there's just like something inside me going like, there's more to you, like something, (laughs) there's something you're not in touch with and you need to think about it. So I went back to the little car that New York one had, had, um, you know, I'd uh, checked out of the motor pool and I just sat there and like cried for like 20 minutes. I was like, I don't understand. Something's going on. I don't know what it is. That's beautiful. It was, yeah, it was really nice. Um, but anyway, the crying was not a usual part of my, my one-on-one uh, duties. Did that for a couple it's of It probably years. is a usual thing for Justin Vivian. For Justin Vivian. Like, that's what I'm saying. Another one came by today. I wrote an, when I came out, I email. I had Justin's email address still and I just emailed them and was like, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but like you really helped me and, you know, I, I'm a big fan and blah, blah, blah. You know, a, a rare moment of me like really violating journalistic ethics just because I'm such a I'm such a diehard. And um, they never wrote back. And I was just like, no, I'm not hurt. I'm like, I'm sure the volume of messages that they get that are along those lines is so large. But no, but you know that they were sipping tea with their cats and they saw that. It's <laughs> probably, <quietly laughs> probably true. Oh, man. But anyway, so uh, I did that for a couple of years. Then um, I thought I'd try something else. I was a little sick of journalism uh, and. I went into marketing. I worked at this uh, – not, not exactly marketing. It's a digital agency called Blue State Digital. Mm. They were best known for running the um, the uh, digital components of the Obama campaign in 2008. Okay. And they – were a for-profit organization that, at least as of then, primarily worked with nonprofits and uh, political campaigns, progressive political campaigns. So that, I was a copywriter there. I was basically writing fundraising emails. Um, and then there were like some corporate clients I got put on. I was a little less enthusiastic about that. It was fine, but I, I was missing journalism. And it was kind of – it was a great company, but it was a nine-to-five. And you know, you'd clock in, you clock out. And I realized like, oh, I can do some stuff on the side. Like I can do journalism of, of a sort. So I started out thinking I didn't have that much time and I would just write, you know, like personal essays or whatever. Um, and I started getting published at Vice, doing stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then I decided, you know, I actually think I could manage a little bit of time here. I could do, you know, actual reported pieces. So I started doing reported stuff for Vice. Then I was doing reported stuff for other outlets. I did, you know, the Boston Globe. I did one story at the Wall Street Journal. I always make sure when I'm writing a bio uh, for an event or a citation or something, I always lead with, uh, and he was a freelance writer who wrote for such outlets as the Wall Street Journal. I had like one article there, but it's technically true. I I did write for the Wall Street (laughs) Journal Um, and uh, the New Republic. And I also did video stuff uh, largely for Vice. Um, I did one short documentary that I'm very proud of to this day, which was called The Finer Points of David Reese. David Reese being this comedian slash writer slash interesting guy about town who uh, was living in Beacon at the time. And I went up there because he was an artisanal pencil sharpener. Obsessed. Uh, yes, I was too. Very queer. Very. <laughs> 
It's a clear narrative. <laughs> Moving the beacon to become a pencil he's, sharpener he's, is. He's, he's actually married now to a. a former co-worker of mine who is I, I don't know that he identifies as queer but moving up to Beacon to pencil sharpen is yeah so he uh, it's something at least but uh, he was very serious about it uh, it was it started as a joke but he got very into it and um, so I made this short documentary about his life uh, as a pencil sharpener mm. and how he came to do that and it was a lot of footage of him like walking you through how to sharpen a pencil with a, a straight razor or whatever you could box cutter and um, that was great and uh, eventually I sort of hit this ceiling where I was like I I want to keep doing more journalism and writing and video and I can't if I have this 9 to 5 job. I mean Blue State was really supportive. They were like you know they had no problem with me doing this stuff on the side, but at a certain point it was like I I can't. I need yeah. to have like this be a full-time thing. So I applied for a bunch of jobs, didn't get any of them and then I went like okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go full-time freelance. It's a big risk, mm-hmm. but like I know enough editors. You know what this is like. And um I uh, put in my two weeks notice and then two days later after, you know, like a year and a half of trying to get a, a real job um, uh, in journalism I and failing, I get this email from the video chair at New York Magazine saying um, I'm leaving and we need somebody to run the video department. I'd been in touch with her because uh, she – I had applied for like a low-level video job there that they didn't even end up filling. I don't think they had the budget for it. But she remembered my name and like my stuff I guess. So she was like, do you want to come like run the video department at New York Magazine? And I'm thinking like, oh, wow, there's going to be this like team that I'll be managing. And like, God, that sounds really stressful. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I can't. Um, it turns out it was – I was – it was me and one other person, and then that other person left after a few months. And so for years, literally years, the video department of New York Magazine uh, consisted of me and only me. We had like a part-time person for like a few months at one point, but I was basically the head of and entirety of this video department. Um, I love – that's something I love about um, working in media because I've had this a lot where from the outside people think you're in this like <laughs> – I don't yes. they think they think you're in this like Max Shrek like 90s <laughs> Trump era media where like yeah. money's pouring in like we're, we're no, in, like, they you think like, you're working for Fox News and it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no 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 New York Magazine has always been you know we we recently got uh acquired by Vox and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out but for a long time the reason we sort of stayed afloat from what I understand uh was we had a pretty lean operation and this right. was definitely a case of being lean so I I I was doing that, um, and after a while of doing that, I was really enjoying doing the video, but I wanted to write as well. Writing is sort of the the first thing in journalism that I did, and I I love it a lot. And so I started writing on the side uh, for New York Magazine and its various properties, mostly for Vulture, the the culture site, and then started doing that more and more. And then it was like 50-50 video and writing. And then eventually I saw Spotlight and walked out of Spotlight and was like, I have to be a real reporter. I got to just like write all the time, crack those stories. And I went up to my boss the next day and was like, uh, can I be a writer? And I expected him to say, no, we need you to do video, like get back to work. But he, he was very supportive. They were looking to pivot to video, like do this was, this was back in the days of Facebook telling you that you're getting all kinds of views on your oh, Facebook videos when it turns out they were inflating by like 900%. Yeah. So New York magazine was definitely one of those places that got kind of kicked in the butt by that. We pivoted to video right after I left, we got somebody else to sort of pioneer that initiative. They like all of a sudden had that, video team that I imagined was there, you know, this like robust, there was like reporters and animators and producers and, you know, Facebook just turned out to be a complete bust. And unfortunately, most of those people are gone now. But by that point I was writing and, uh, I was first an associate editor, then I was a, a staff writer. And then, um, last year, kind of out of the blue, I got a book deal, um, that was not the result of me pitching anything. They came to me. And, um, so early this year, I kind of had the option of like, go on book leave for only six months and then you have a guaranteed job at the end of it. Or if you want to have more time, go part time. Mm. So I went part time. So I, I work from home now. I, I don't go to the office. Um, and I'm not like on the hook for 
you know, cranking out a certain quota. Not that I ever really was, but there was kind of an expectation that your main task would be right. writing for New York Magazine. Now, I, I still write a lot for them, but I make my own schedule and uh, can focus on the book. But as, it's good because I think for your acolytes who are either in the comics camp or the Israel camp or both, we know that you'll, you're still looking oh, yeah, yeah. out for I, us, I, which well, is good. It's because I have ADD. So like the idea of focusing on just one thing is very so, hard. Yeah, I know. It's like, I mean, I literally have ADD and it's, it's hard for me to like just have one thing in the hopper. And also, yeah, I do get very paranoid about like, what have you done for me lately? Like if I yeah. don't keep putting out pieces, are people going to forget that I exist? Which I don't know if that's the case, but um, I, I I don't have any regrets about continuing to do stuff during this past year of, of working on the book. How did the comics journalism manifest? So that was, you know, I grew up reading comics a lot. Um, I kind of like, you know, this is sort of a typical story around college. I stopped reading them as much. Right. I had a few creators that I followed. I really liked Brian K. Vaughn and Grant Morrison, and I would, you know, pick up the occasional other thing, but it was mostly sticking with, you know, one or two people that I found interesting. And then after college, I really dropped off. I was barely reading anything. Uh, and then I discovered Comixology, which is the digital mm. comics platform. And I was like, oh, wow, I don't have to, like, go to a sweaty, weird comic book store. I can just, like – and this was this was during a, a period before when it wasn't owned by Amazon, so you could just buy in-app. So anyone who was using Comixology back then will tell you, like, you blew a lot of money just going, like, okay, next issue. Yeah. And you're just sort of pretending it's, like, a library when really you're paying, you know, $3 for that next issue. So all of a sudden I just went, oh – right. Comics are great. Like there's a lot of good stuff out there. So this is like 2012 uh, ish. And um, so I was reading a bunch again and I have this thing about me where basically if I find something really interesting, it's really hard for me to not eventually pitch a story on it. Um, yeah, I'm, I know you're the same way. And I eventually was uh, once I was at New York Mag. I I'd like written one or two comics related things for Vice, but it hadn't really seemed like it was going to be a consistent thing. And then at New York Mag, I started pitching stuff that was either comics related, uh, comics about comics or comics adjacent, like about things that are adapted from comics. And um, it was a real case of just being in the right place at the right time. This is 2013. So it's after Avengers, the movie kind of mm. demonstrated that this model was something that was going to have staying power and really be able to be ported and um and dark knight rises dark knight rises sure and uh so 2013 was uh, you know during this stretch of a couple of years where the re the mainstream media was kind of waking up to the fact that there's a readership or a viewership for stuff about comics and things adapted from comics and you can you can treat it as a serious subject even if you don't think the comics themselves are good the industry is fascinating and the creative uh, assembly line that goes from idea for a comic to finished product of a bajillion dollar movie um, that was something that wasn't really being explored, and I, I just sort of lucked out that no one had – very few people had really written about that, and I went, well, why not? So I started writing in little dribs and drabs. It was initially sort of like essays, and then eventually I was like – well, I might as well report on this, you know, and starts out just doing interviews with people and then the interviews graduate into, you know, like for Q&As and then that graduates into doing more features. And so by like 2015 or so, I'd kind of made my bed for that. And I'm really lucky because New York Magazine and Vulture um, were unbelievably supportive of that. So let me just break things down for sure, our please. listeners. This is the way the world works, okay? <laughs> Tell me. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. When you have a passion for this stuff, yeah. um, you know, many of us who have been reading comics and in this world, this predates the period we're in now where any guy can go on Grindr, post a picture of a six-pack <laughs> and say, I'm a, I'm a Marvel geek, okay? This right, is right, a right. new phenomenon. And uh -huh. Abe and I come from a world where... This is a thing that's a part of us. We've been reading them for years. Sometimes we don't read any. Sometimes we're reading right. them like crazy. It's just a thing. It's like your religion where you're like, yeah, I'll yeah. go to show, whatever. <laughs> we're not like, I'm a geek. Check it out. Okay. No, never. When the 
outside journalistic world wants to get involved, it's usually humiliating for them and groan-inducing for us. Correct. Because, and Abe has been one of the best at pointing these out, every once in a while, whenever the New York Times wants to write something about the comic book industry, the, the headline will be like, holy, holy, uh, holy yeah. box office, Batman. Exactly. Like something fucking dumb. I know. People have been doing these headlines since the 60s when the Batman TV show came. And I've been finding this stuff, also re- doing research for the Stan, this this book that I'm writing, which is about Stan Lee, um, because you read stuff when Marvel was first getting like discovered by the mainstream media, and those were the headlines. I mean, it was, yeah. even back then, it was, bam, pow, comics aren't just for kids anymore. Yeah. And still to this day, the, the Times has gotten a little better, but you do still end up with a lot of mainstream headlines that are like, bam, pow, comics aren't for kids anymore. And you're like, Jesus, they haven't been for like 40 years at this point. And a lot of, you know, comic books are like soap operas, right? Correct. Where they've been, they run for decades. So often when people think they sound intelligent when they're talking about comics, they don't because people will say something like, well, that didn't happen in the comics. And it's like, that's not really a thing because yeah. everything and nothing has happened in the Correct. comics. Correct. You like, get it. Yep. So mm-hmm. often you'll read really weird, speculative, bad reporting. So I, Abe at Vulture has been one of the voices who's like, this is what's going on on a metric level. Um, because pe- even like we're seeing with this Joker movie, people just aren't really getting like the bigger picture. And Abe, you know, Abe wrote a really great piece about Harley Quinn where you were like, Oh yeah, Mecca 2015. Yeah. Yeah. You were like, there's this emergence on an IP level of a female character who is making a lot of money via hot topic and all these other sources. Right. This is how it happened. And this is what it means. Not, and the rest of the journalism was like, girls like to dress like a cool slut called yeah, right. It was like, no, why is this happening? Right, so right, right. I, I just want to give everyone that bit of a framework Thank because, it, yeah, for, for those of us who don't... Um... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I'm taking us on a tangent. No, I love tangents. With Go I'm, for I'm it. with the ultimate Sagittarius, so he's going to come <laughs> on this. So, have you ever read Samuel Delaney? Uh, Chip Delaney, I've read some of his comics. I, I, I am a big admirer, but I will admit I've not read much of okay. his prose. So I just read Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Okay. Um, and there's a whole part in it about contact versus networking. And he has this whole thing about how – Times Square used to be a contact site where you would have random interactions. Sure, people yeah. People would cruise. You'd have sex with a guy at the theater. Then you'd he'd he'd right. end up giving you a, a job. Blah blah blah. Now <laughs> it's become networking, where it's just yeah. tourists. You go to Times Square for this, this, and this. The comic book world and this industry has shifted in that way too, from being this like thing you're interested in to like this brand loyalty thing like i'm always shocked when people are just like yeah i will see every single marvel movie because it's like i, I it just happened overnight to me that there's this yeah. idea of like mainstream brand loyalty in such an obscure way where to me i always i'm not celebrating by the way nostalgia <laughs> and i'm not celebrating like comic shop culture because it's so fucked up but yeah. to me it was always like Oh, yeah, I'm obsessed with this character called Black Canary. She's in this comic book called Birds of Prey. Yeah, Maybe yeah, I'll yeah. find my people who are also obsessed with that, and if yeah, not, yeah. not. And it's become this huge monolithic thing. Yes. Your journalism, I think, has helped us kind of parse this out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the line I always say is uh, Roger Ebert used to say that movies were a machine designed to create empathy. And serial comic books, like monthly floppy comics, are a machine designed to create obsession. I mean, mm. the this has been the business model since the 30s when the modern comic book was invented. You buy something and you go, wow, I want to get more of that. Um, and then a month later, there's a new version of it with new mm. content in it and the same characters. It's not – and then another one and then another one and it never stops as opposed to like – 
you know, buying a novel and going like, okay, I read the beginning, middle and end and it's over and this was great. Um, you, you're supposed to just be on the hook for indefinitely. It just, these, especially with the Marvel and DC characters, they never really die. They're always around. And I find what you're talking about, this, this degree of like, you know, fixation that people have and identification that they have with these characters fascinating because it's now ported over into film and television where you have movies coming out like comics. I mean, the, you, every few months you have a new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie to watch and every couple of years there's a new person playing Batman and a new person playing Spider-Man and you can, you know, get the illusion of change with just enough continuity to what you already like and watching that metastasize out into the larger economy and culture has been really fascinating because as you say, I mean, you were saying a few minutes ago, like when we were growing up, yeah, you wouldn't like try and hit on somebody by saying like, I read comic books. No, not in the slightest. I mean, (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I had plenty of people who I was, like, in romantic situations with who would just make fun of me for it. Like, people who, like, yeah. loved me. It was yeah. – it was. Yeah, I'm not saying, like, you know, that's bigotry or anything. It's just – I'm talking about a sea change that's happened in terms of how we perceive these pieces of intellectual property. I guess for me, this is where I become a snob. I guess there's just this sense because I find it really exciting. I love comic book movies. Like I'm excited sure. for I you know, I want to write the Black Canary movie. After yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever happens with this birds of prey yeah. movie. I don't know. But um I I sometimes I'm just a little confused because mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like what do you when I see people lining up for the Marvel Cinematic movies. I'm like, what do you like? What what mm, what's your passion in the passion is what because I, I see the brand loyalty. I get that. I wonder about the passion aspect because that was always the stereotype used against us, which is like, oh my God, these people who are like so fucking geeky and so obsessed with this yeah. obscure storyline that happened twenty years ago. They're so, you know, crazy about it. That's the part that's missing because I'm like, you know, they love these things that come at them, and I wonder what is the right. What, what is what the, is the thing that what's comes the thing that you? gets at your soul as opposed to just your your brain and going like, yes. wow, I enjoy this. Like, what's the thing that makes you go, I identify with this. I think it's different for different people. Um, there are people who come at it and it hits the sort of God module of just going like. You know, it's the same reason, you know, this is a hackneyed thing to say, but I think there's something to be said for it, that there's something about humans that wants to engage in, uh, engage with mythic storytelling of just like good and evil and heroes. Totally. Totally. But what I find especially interesting, because that's fascinating in and of itself, but what I find really interesting is the people who come at the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, and other sort of superhero properties um, from a queer and very sexual perspective. There are a lot of, I mean, once you start looking into the fanfic world when it comes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's fascinating. I mean, the worlds that the people who are in these fandom communities have created using these characters. And it's usually the the movie versions of these characters. That was their entry point because comic books have been a very gate-kept and yeah. exclusionary community for so long so that, you know, you have these fic writers who are primarily women, um, and primarily very progressive politically, and they come at these movie characters and go, there's subtext here that, even the creators are not aware of. Oh, certainly the creators they're, are not aware. Uh, totally of. not aware. Or if they are dudes in LA, right? Or, or if they are, they they do everything they can to um, repress it from being text. But like you know, you look at the relationship between Captain America and Bucky, um, his his you know erstwhile uh, friend and sidekick who dies and then or we think dies and comes back and turns out he's like had all this trauma and was like a brainwashed uh, assassin and um there is there are piles and piles of stories about what is called Stucky which is short for Steve is the name of Captain America and Bucky so it's this ship this relationship uh that people imagine between those two characters and 
there is some beautiful stuff that's been written in that and beautiful fan artwork that's been done. And it's really frustrating for them with a sense I get that um, Marvel will never give that to them. And yet that doesn't stop them from going to these movies and sort of imagining what could be happening and saying, this is the raw material. There's so much more that can be done with this. And I, I admire that so much. I'm not a a fiction writer. I I don't really know how to do that. And um, when I see people writing great fic, especially great, like queer, you know, progressive fic about characters that have been around since the forties or the sixties, I just sit in awe and I go, awe at both them for the quality of their writing and also awe at the power of these archetypes and this intellectual property. It's interesting because, you know, when I grew up, the character of Loki, I had his action figure and everything. He was this kind of like very old Shakespearean, wretched uh, Iago type. (laughs) Yes. And then when Tom Hiddleston, uh, the moment happened and women were like, I want women, women. Yes, very much. Not gay men. Women yeah, were yeah, like, yeah. I want that. Yeah. I remember I went the next Comic-Con after I think the Avengers. I started seeing the Tom Hiddleston Loki pillowcases. Yeah. And then yeah. in Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers, they were like, yeah. I guess we need to make Loki sexy now. So they made him kind of like a teen and they yeah. made him very sexy. And now Loki is more or less going to be, f- I don't know, forever, but – He's been sexy for the better part of a decade in the yes. comics. So they do have an effect, but yeah, it, it's never going to get to like the place they want it. But, you know, then we can get into fanfic theory, which is right, like, right. perhaps they never want it to become textual. Right, exactly. So that if they do, then it, it ruins the magic. Requited. And yes, exactly. that's true. Yeah. So I'm curious because the comics superhero industry discourse is very polarized, especially if you look at a place like Twitter between – the old nostalgic straight fucks, etc., <laughs> who often run the industry, uh-huh, and yeah. then very radicalized or often very strident, yeah, um, queer people. And I always felt what made you unique was uh-huh. um, you're bi and you speak both languages. You really do. A lot. A lot of Fair people enough. don't, but I feel like you're able to because there are a lot of texts where I go like, oh, fuck Frank Miller. That's for straight people. Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. fuck um, Todd Phillips Joker. I don't want to hear about it. That's for straight people. Yeah. You have been able to be like really able to walk in both worlds. And I'm just really curious about your experience with that. That's a really interesting point. I, I, I'm very flattered uh, that you'd say that. I, you know, I spent most of my life thinking of myself as straight, despite the fact that like, there, there were a lot of parts of me that when you – I mean this is the story of so many people who come out later in life. Mm-hmm. You look back at the scope of your life and there are all these moments and fixations and um, you know things you've said or done that all of a sudden start to weave into this tapestry where you go like, oh, this didn't come out of nowhere. Like there was a lot that was happening um, and – but I, you know, for the first thirty odd years of my life, about thirty, I I just assumed I was a straight person, despite all this evidence that would pop up to the contrary, and so I definitely speak that language for better or worse. But it's funny that you say you think I speak. I I, I always, you know, feel very intimidated when I'm in uh, queer spaces because I feel like. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to, you know, a lot of times there are going to be reference points that I miss out on. I'm, I'm generalizing, but I think a lot of bi men, you know, wherever they are, because we don't end up having very much congregation of just ourselves. Um, I think a lot of bi men that I've met on Twitter agree with me on this in that, like, especially if you came out relatively late in life, um, you often just feel like, you really admire and respect and want to be a part of the queer world. This is not like me resenting Mm. um, and going like, oh, you know, there's so many gatekeepers and I'm being kept out. It's more just I like to be fluent in the language of whatever social situation I'm in. And so a lot of times I'll be in queer spaces either online or in person and I'll just be like, oh, God, I'm they're going to realize that I don't know what I'm talking about. But I think it's easier online when you're talking about cultural stuff because um, 
there I've I've spent more time at least thinking about how queer spaces operate online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easier to just sort of dip your toe in and research those spaces without having to be an active participant because you can like read fanfic or you can go on Twitter and yeah. watch people interact with each other, um, read blogs, all of that. And um, I feel like I'm getting better at it, but you know, there's. I still feel a little awkward with it. I feel like I understand more than maybe a lot of people who are not in both worlds understand. I, you know, maybe. Um, but in terms of speaking it, I still have trouble. You know, I, I don't really know how to write about queerness in a way where I feel like, okay, I can be authoritative about this. Like when I, in writing about, comics or any other kind of entertainment or whatever, um, I'm not super comfortable with that. And we, we haven't talked about the other topic area that I, I, I often delve into, which is sort of Jewish issues. Oh, yeah. Um, but well, what's funny Let's is – of ambiguity. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it was talking about these like moments from your past when you realize like, oh, there was something there. I, I recently remembered and rediscovered this article I wrote um, in college for New Voices, which is this um, college magazine about Jewish issues and like written by college students. And I'd written this article about queer Orthodox Jews. Mm. And um, I remember writing that I had sort of forgotten about the experience of writing that because it was kind of a one-off. I wasn't really writing about Jewish issues regularly. Uh, it was just kind of a gig that had fallen into my lap. And then I was looking back on it and I was going like, I was – I'm not orthodox, but like I remember feeling such a longing to understand this more so than virtually anything else that I wrote back in college. I'm not saying the article – the article came out fine, but I remember when I was talking to these people, I was like I want to get it. Both Judaism because I was not raised orthodox um, and also um, Queerness, And those were just things I, I didn't have the vocabulary for. And I feel like in recent years, both of those, I've started to learn the language a little bit more is my rambly response. Yeah. To so I, who is am the just bitter, old, dead uh, Israeli who just <laughs> – I don't want to deal with it anymore and just do whatever you want. I uh, so admire you and this is your true Sagittarian energy of like, uh-huh. all right, let's get like, let's, let's try. Let's crack our knuckles and try to make sense of this. Yeah. It's been about a year and a half, right? Since you've yeah, really about, started writing about Yeah, Israel. coming up on about two years. Well, okay. about two years of really thinking about it. And then, like I said, you know, once I start thinking about something, I, I usually pitch a piece on it. So, yeah, my first article beyond those like scattered college things that I did, the first article that I wrote that sort of fell into that bucket came out. Well, I, I started reporting it in January of 2018. Okay. Didn't come out until the spring, but that was sort of the beginning of me working on it. Great. So I'm curious how, because it's such a um, frustrating, disappointing. <laughs> we we no, just you're right. the polarities of the comic book world in terms of polarities. Oh, God. Israel-Palestine within, I'm not even talking about Israel-Palestine. I'm just talking about within how Jews feel about Israel-Palestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. You, nothing, even going into other communities, yeah. You can't imagine. No, completely. Um, so I'm just wondering how this has been for you. I've really enjoyed it, the challenge. I mean, because I, I'm a little bit of a people pleaser. Um, so it's a real like playing with fire situation yeah. to talk about something where you can't, you literally can't please everybody. Um, but it also, you know, it feels like things are really, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> it feels like things are really, uh, falling apart around the world. And it felt like I do want to keep writing about comics and culture and geek stuff, but also I want to engage with something that is hard and has real life or death consequences yeah. and deserves serious analysis. Um, and also there's just the you know selfish reason of because I hadn't thought much about this stuff. I mean I had a baseline level of knowledge, but it hadn't been an object of study for me. Once I started engaging with these Jewish topics and topics relating to Israel-Palestine, um, I 
was just so fascinated because, you know, for you, it's a completely different experience. This is something you, that's been a part of you for so long. Whereas for me, you know, it's, it's a complicated story, but for the most part, it was very rarely a top of mind set of questions for me. Mm -hmm. My Jewish identity was not a huge priority throughout my life, although it existed, you know, I became bar mitzvah, went to Hebrew school, all that, but it wasn't, it was never like a main vector for me. And then, uh, you know, like I went on a college trip, it wasn't birthright, but it was like birthright, um, to Israel. And I thought about it a lot while I was there. Uh, but then afterward, you know, I had this knowledge, but again, it wasn't like a top priority for me. So more recently, once I've started really engaging with it, unlike you, it all feels comparatively fresh and feels like, wow, why are people not talking about this all the time? It's so interesting. And I have to always keep in the back of my mind that like, well, the reason a lot of people don't talk about it is because it's, it is a life or death issue. And uh, when you're talking about Israel, Palestine, but to a certain extent, just talking about anything Jewish these days, what with the, the horrible, horrific, murderous anti-Semitism that happens when you're writing about this stuff, it means a lot to people and you have to treat it delicately and not just come at it as somebody who goes like, this is so interesting. Like, uh, here's this topic that's kind of divorced from visceral reaction and is just this cerebral exercise. It's not that. So, you know, I kind of stumbled into it and I've been trying my best to not screw up. And, um, you know, I've ticked off some people, but I try not. One thing that really bugs me is that a lot of people who write in this space um, see it as a reason to, or, or uh, an excuse to just get really incendiary and, you and know, gain followers and gain followers. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like by taking an extreme stance, you can get a lot of people paying attention to you and saying right on. Um, but it's really hard to try and say, um, you know, how do I, how do I understand where people are coming mm. from? Uh, throughout this this whole spectrum of questions, and um, something that I've really liked, I think that you yeah. do with with both comic books and with Israel is you have this, which is very you of being like, I understand you're all looking at this big flashy thing, yeah, but why don't we like look at some of the machine behind it and like sure. i think what a lot of your like election time writing you'll be like i get that this thing makes everyone <laughs> mad these are the people who yeah. are bankrolling it and this is like why it's happening i try to do that helps. to a certain extent yeah i mean i you know the piece that probably got me the most attention within that that sphere was uh, i wrote a profile about or a feature rather um about this um anti-occupation, this, this group that's very critical of Israel uh, that's comprised of young Jews in America called If Not Now. And that came out last summer. And I really wanted to approach that one not as an opinion piece. I, I had a little bit of analysis at the end, but I, I thank you for noticing what I was kind of going for there, which was like, as opposed to just saying, okay, well, here's a bunch of bad Jews or a bunch of, you know, unbelievable heroes that are pure of heart. I was like, let's, let's see what's the story of how this thing came together. Yeah. Like as opposed to starting at the end point of what they look like now, let's figure out what's the DNA that led to this group existing and mm -hmm. becoming the kind of flashpoint firebrand group that they are. And um, I hope to continue doing that more. I mean, I, I feel like to a certain extent, you can't get really great at that stuff until you've just lived in it and gotten really well sourced on it over the course of years. And that's what I'm hoping to do. I mean, I'm, I, I haven't had much time. I've had a decreasing amount of time to focus on anything other than the book over the course of the year, especially because right now I'm like writing it. And so, you know, I took a, a wee break to write a couple of things related to Watchmen, the the TV show that's coming out. Um, but <laughs> Can I just say Watchmen? Yeah. Another divisive object. <laughs> this is so funny because I – have always really resented Watchmen because sure you and a lot of people. I I yeah I've always thought of it as like, um, I've always felt like people who don't read comic books always will sneer at us and be like, oh you read comic books they're trash. But I guess Watchmen's yeah. good. I read it in college. And it's right, like, oh, right. Well, fuck you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always thought yeah. of it as just like straight bullshit. 
But it's so funny. I am such a cliched gay because as soon as they throw Regina King in, I was like, (laughs) I don't care what it is. I'm obsessed. I'll take a bullet. Let me tell you, you know, you're going to, I mean, Regina, I've seen the first six episodes and I will tell you zero about the plot or setup, but um, Regina is amazing. (sighs) Regina is so good, but you know who um, is, God, the whole cast really blows my mind, but you know who really like gets you right in the feels and I think will become possibly even more than Regina become kind of iconic in queer spaces is Jean Smart, who plays (laughs) grown up, grown up Lori. And she is amazing. I I love Jean Smart. I, I, I've adored her in everything I've seen her. She's great on Legion too. She's amazing on Legion. She's great on Fargo. She does. She's, and she's got this decades long pedigree. And she plays, you know, a character from the original comic that's sort of, you know, progressed and and become older. And, oh, I I don't want to tell you anything beyond that, but it's really good. The show, I mean, the show is is a fascinating thing. I, I, you know, I interviewed Damon Lindelof, the the showrunner, and the way he talked about, um, you know what? Actually, I'm not going to tell you because I don't know when this is going to come out and I want people to read the article. But if you haven't already and it's already out, check out my um, my interview with Damon Lindelof because he had a lot of interesting things to say about what we're talking about here. I want to hear about your journey writing the book because um, this I've been very honored and delighted to help (laughs) transcribe interviews from for it yes thank you i've learned a lot i've been really inspired and i've just i'm curious about how this journey has been yeah well i mean it came out of nowhere i was actually thinking okay you know i'll keep writing a little bit about comics but maybe i should transition into writing a little more about the jewish stuff and then um stan died so again i i'll I'll mention again for people who don't know what the hell we're talking about so stan lee was uh the you know most famous comic book creator that ever lived. Uh, this was a guy who was, uh, in many ways responsible for the way Marvel comics, um, was, uh, created as a brand and, um, you know, was certainly its greatest pitch man and, and public face. Um, and then became well known in the mainstream as sort of an ambassador of Marvel and comic books. And then especially well known by having cameos in a million bajillion movies that were adapted from Marvel comics. So, so he died uh, in November of last year, 2018, and I had written a profile of him that was published in 2016 when he was still alive, and you know, this long, long thing that was published in Vulture that I was very proud of, and then when he died, the next day, I got an email from my agent, my literary agent, with whom I, uh, who I love and with whom I had unsuccessfully pitched who knows how many books. Um, he said, I got this email from this editor at Penguin Random House and he wants you to write a biography of Stan. And I almost like said no because I was like, I don't know how to write a book. I remember. I know, right. We were talking about it. I was like, I, I don't know how to write a book. Like I've never, I, I literally don't know what is, I mean, I guess it's a dumb reason not to write a book. But, but it I just think felt that like, there was also a sentiment of like, you, I don't, I, at the time you were like, w- you shouldn't be the one to write this book. Yeah, because- I felt like it, I, I don't know. It's for some reason, I'm sure- well, because I, to me, I got the sense like Stanley is, again, one of those things where like the outside world adores. And I think if you've been on the inside, yeah, and it, it's a more ambivalent. And yeah, and Abe has done a lot of responding, a, a lot of reporting about like the darker sides of the industry and a lot of the, yeah. the people who have been screwed over by this yeah. industry and how, you know, how that relates to him. So, yeah, I remember you had a sense of. like Yeah, I, was, I don't know. Part of me just felt like. Maybe this isn't my thing to do. I then also was reminded of something I'd forgotten, which was uh, a, an acquaintance of mine, Danny Fingeroff, who's uh, um, you know has worked in the industry. He's, he's uh, uh, you know a previous generation older and knew Stan. You know, he was already writing a biography of Stan, and I, it comes out this November. And I was like, oh well, he's got that. You know, I, I, they're not going to want mine. Um, but you know, I think my agent sort of slapped some sense into me and was like you know, just give it a shot. Like 
see, take a meeting, whatever. So I met with the editor who's great. And, uh, then I wrote like a little outline of like theoretically what I would do with the book. And, um, to my genuine surprise, it like went through all the layers of approval and got the green light. So I've been working on it since about December. Mm. Um, we formally announced in January. Um, and, uh, it's been wild. I mean, the, I'm sort of the inverse of the stereotype of a writer in that uh, because I have ADD, researching is the part I like least because I have to sit down and consume lots and lots of text and it's just hard for my eyes not to glaze over. I have to really like – I mean I do it fine. I just have to put in a lot of effort to like focus and then my favorite activity in the whole world is writing. Like right. once I'm actually – at the keyboard with the material that I need and I can synthesize it, you know, my ADD brain, it's like I, the metaphor I often use is it's like a bunch of metal filings with, you know, those little toys where you can like use metal filings, to like draw a beard on somebody or a mustache or whatever yes. on their face. It's like all of a sudden I have the magnet and all the metal filings are going to one place, which yes. is like me writing. And, um, so I'm in the writing stage right now and it's actually been a joy. I mean, the research phase, there were ups and downs. There were days when it was really frustrating days when it was less frustrating, but now that I'm actually writing, it's been really great. And, the, the sort of middle ground in between research, which I hate, and writing, which I adore, uh, is interviews, uh, which obviously you've you've heard a lot of them because you've been so kind as to be a great transcriber. Oh, and I'm so excited. I know. And um, I've done like, I think at this point, 150 interviews for this thing, uh, somewhere around. The, I mean, the guy lived for almost a century and he knew a lot of people. He interacted with a lot of folks. So you don't really run out of people with stories about Stan, be they positive or negative. And, um, it's the writing process has been a joy and also really enlightening because I've never had this quantity of material to draw from yeah. for a piece. So once you start writing, you're pulling in things from different stages of the research process and you start to collate and go like, oh, when I put together the ways Stan talked about this one thing over the course of like, you know, seven decades or whatever, all of a sudden a different per, you get a different picture of it when you've looked at all of his accounts of this one event and you start to see inconsistencies or, mm. or consistencies, things that carry through things that don't. And, you know, when you do that with an entire person's life, a person's entire life rather, um, you start to get the bigger picture only once you're really sitting down and writing because that's when you realize like what it all adds up to. What's been exciting for me I think is um, you know, listening to a lot of these interviews, I think the, the book's going to have a really specific point of view because you are this kind of outsider and you're queer and you're interviewing oh, you. a lot of people who are of an older generation yeah. and who are all together in this industry, yeah. many of whom are straight dudes. So True. it's very interesting hearing a lot of these interviews and and thinking like, wow, when that person who is a comic book megastar in the 70s says this thing, how is that going to register in Abe's little pea brain? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about writing it from a queer perspective. That was not you know exactly my intention, but there are components that I think benefit from being somebody who doesn't fit too neatly in a box. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I don't want to give away anything about the book really, but one thing I will say is that, you know, don't read too much into this, but it's not hero worship. No, and it's, the, it's, it's the inverse. It's right. This is, I, I'm treating this guy as a source, uh, an object rather of serious historical and journalistic inquiry. And that has rarely been done. Um, Which is why I thought you had to write the book. Right. Well, I thank you. For your hero's journey of being this outsider, you had to be the one to tell the story. Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, it's 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 very interesting to come at it because you find out that you have more of a visceral reaction than you're expecting. And I think that's probably true for a lot of the hagiographies that have been written around mm. them as well is that people get very emotional about Stan, um, be it po positive or negative. People have deep emotional responses when they talk about him um, because he was such a presence. I mean, this is not 
somebody whose work you're even judging all that often. Certainly not. That no. would change a lot. Well, of the that's factors. the thing. Is like, I mean, the book, the book itself is not. I mean, I obviously talk about comics a lot, but it's not an exegesis of the work that was going of of the the finished work. What I find more interesting is the story that led to the work because I I don't want to alienate people who don't find comics interesting. I want this book to be interesting for everybody. Right. And he had an interesting enough life that um, I think you can do that. Um, but you know, when you do look at the comics, you start to realize like that's not what people were responding to. Certainly. It was, I mean, to a certain extent, sure. You're going like, wow, it's really cool that the characters now talk sort of kind of like real people and like there's a lot of bombast and excitement. But the more you interview people, especially people who ended up going into the industry about what they loved about the comics Stan worked on, the more you hear them go, it was the letters pages or it was the narration or it was like all of this it's stuff to Steve Jobs like. No one knows about Apple and like no yeah. one cares about like the goings right. on at Apple's factories. It's about like who is this figure who is this figure that who represents this kind of yes. industry father thing completely. I, I I completely agree. He he is somebody who people felt like, especially if you were reading his stuff, his letters columns and editorial copy when you were a kid in the sixties. Uh, and you know, to a lesser extent, the seventies, if you were that age, you read this shit and you went, this is a friend. Like, this is somebody who loves me. This right. is somebody who cares about me and who wants me to be happy. And I just think it's really hard for people who have that kind of relationship with somebody to write about them objectively. Um, I'm not saying there's no value in writing a hagiography. Hey you can have a lot of interesting information in there. It's just, you know, there, there. I, I should shout out. There was a very good short biography of Stan that came out in the mid aughts in two thousand four um, by Tom Spurgeon and Jordan Raphael, which was serious journalism. But it was short. It was a small press, and most importantly, you know, it ends in like two thousand four because that's mm. when the book came out. And I would argue that the most interesting years of Stan's life were the last twenty years of his life. And just uh, they couldn't get into much of that because most of those 20 years hadn't happened. And there's a lot that you can't understand Stan retroactively um, about. There's a lot that you learn from the last 20 years of his life that changes the way you think about everything that came before as well. And I'm really looking forward to being able to tell that story. And I'm not looking forward to all of the backlash <laughs> that's going to inevitably happen. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe it'll be a – You have a history of doing this thing where you're like, you know what, Twitter? I'm going off. I'm done. I've had it. I want to be happy. And then and I then come back. five minutes later, you're like, why am I back here? Why am I back here? Oh, God. Twitter, you know, the worst. I just made a really crazy connection. But again, I'm with my favorite Sagittarius. So you're just yeah, going to have to Yeah, please. Go for it. A lot of the Stan story, a lot of the comic book story, a lot of the comic book industry is about people who think they're underdogs. Well, and when yeah. they later on are no longer underdogs, but in their heads they still are. Yes, and a lot of that is true about Israel Palestine stuff, which Ooh. is like, no, we're the little guy. We're not the bad. Everybody we're thinks the they're guy. the little guy. Yeah, and I'm seeing that with a lot of these things you cover. Is like this a lot of people creating narratives about themselves or their cause and you kind of being the person to be like, um, um, like what's, wait a minute. What, uh, what's going on here? I feel like you're, you're God, I'm, this has been a, such an interesting conversation because I'm hearing all these perspectives on like the stuff I write that I wouldn't have thought of. Mm. And, um, but I think you're right. I, part of what I try to do is say, you know, I try to decenter myself, and in doing so, I try to make the reader be decentered mm. and not think purely from their own perspective. Because right now, we live in this media landscape where, unfortunately, the stuff that gets picked up the most is stuff that has confirmation bias, where it's just, what can I read and share that I already agree with and mm. that doesn't challenge me in any way? And I try the best I can to kind of be a bit of a Trojan horse and go, okay, you're probably thinking this could be something where you go into it and have all of your biases confirmed. Um, what I hope I can do is without going like, you know, in your face, idiot, you're wrong, yeah. um, at least allow you to have the the journey that I try to have while I write these things, which is 
what if I'm wrong? Mm. You know, I feel like there's so freaking little uh, that people do these days, myself included, to say, what if I'm wrong? Everyone assumes that they've figured it out. And it's such a poison to analysis and to discourse and to journalism and to history and any number of inquiries when you just assume you're right. And I think that's back to the bisexual thing. I think <laughs> so. that's why I kind of love you as like a whisperer because – you know, you're saying when you're in queer spaces, you don't want to say the wrong thing. I think a lot of people, when they enter a queer space, they just take on the voice that's popular yeah. and that's like becomes enough. Yeah. You are you have this thing where you're like, wait a minute, you know, what's what's real here? What's right? What's yeah. appropriate? And I think that leads to that objectivity and that question of what if I'm wrong? Let's see. Yeah. But I think, you know, when you go on either side when you cross over to the queer world, when you double down and stay in the straight world, you kind of can just adopt things yeah. so that you don't have to question. Sure. What if I'm wrong? No, totally. I mean, I, I you know, when it comes to queerness, you know, I, I, a big portion of what, uh, of what um, sort of held me back from seeing myself until I was about 30 was, you know, when I, I was a very effeminate kid yeah. and, um, you know, just in any number of ways, I projected uh, an air that was not what you'd think of as traditionally masculine. And then I got to junior high, uh, you know, when you're hitting puberty, things are changing, everybody's looking at everybody differently. And I got bullied really hard. Mm. And I was like, oh, I sh this isn't. Like this is a bad idea. I I I should. I'm probably I'm straight, and I should act a certain way in order to protect myself. And that's the weird, insidious part about being bisexual. There's a lot of privilege that comes from being bi, yeah. but the insidious part about being bi is you can be a mystery to yourself because you can fit into one or the other, uh, or you know any number of different environments, and go well. I'm totally comfortable here. Uh, it, lie to yourself and think you're totally comfortable just being in that one thing. So, you know, what really cracked me and, and I should say I was bullied by my enemies, but I was bullied by my friends too. This was mm. the late nineties. I mean, there was still this tremendous amount of homophobia, um, especially when it came to men. Um, and, uh, it was just like you among your friends would like call each other horrible names, um, relating to sexuality and the I was I just felt like, OK, well, I'm just going to be as straight as I can. And then I remember vividly when I got to college after being there for a few months, um, I asked one of my friends, um, one of my new friends at college, I was like, did, when you met me, be honest, did you think I was gay? Because throughout my entire life up until that point, when people met me um, – in new situations going, you know, the last one having been the beginning of high school, people just always assumed I was gay and I would have to sort of like, quote unquote, disabuse them of that notion. So I asked this college friend, I was like, did you think I was gay when you met me? And she said, no, I assumed you were straight. And I like almost cried. I was like so happy that I'd managed to, um, you know, I was thinking of it as like, be, you know, show who I am. But really it was like I was so happy that I was able to pass. Mm. It's this – I mean being biased – again, there's a lot of privilege. I'm not trying to say it's like the worst thing in the world. But it's a fucking weird experience, man. Being in both of those worlds and being able to um, be valid in both of them can give you a real mind fuck after a while. And, um, so it wasn't until I was like 30 and having like just this moment, uh, when sort of out of nowhere, I was like, what if all the stuff that I've done with guys and my attraction to men, um, actually was a part of me as opposed to this thing that I'm just sort of saying like, oh, well that happens, but I'm still straight, right. you know? And, um, you know, anyway, to get back to your your point from a few minutes ago before I rambled, it does oh. come to this sort of what if I'm wrong thing where when I was 30, I went, what if I'm not straight? Like, what if this thing that I've held not only as a fact, but as like something that I hold really close so that I don't suffer the slings and arrows of the world? What if I just went, what if that whole assumption has been wrong? 
and I'm actually somebody who's queer. And it all of a sudden, you know, everything fell into place. Like I, I just went, oh, all of those things, you know, from be they sexual experiences with men or or more sort of, you know, I always hesitate to describe things as being queer when they're not directly related to, related to sexuality because I just feel like I don't have the right to do that. But like, you know, things like naming my hamster um, Evita in uh, sixth grade, you know, stuff like that where you go <laughs> – True story. I saw Madonna in Evita and I was like, we got a hamster the next week. And I was like, we should name it Evita. Why not? Um, yeah, that's got to. Right. There's that, something that's gotta there. That's got to tally somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, all that stuff sort of you look at it differently and you go, well, what if that was, those were not eccentricities, but they're actually part of who I am? Mm. I don't know. Um, that's no, that's so well said. Um, okay, so where can people be following you? Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, <laughs> as you pointed out, I have moments when I'm not there, and then moments when I'm there too much, and I have a lot of trouble finding that middle ground. Um, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Abraham Joseph, Joseph being my middle name, um, and you can find my website abrahamreisman.com. It's R I E, but even if you misspell it as R E I, it redirects. I was very smart about that because it's the family curse; they misspell it all the time. Um, and yeah, keep an eye out for me on Vulture in New York Magazine, and my Stanley book uh, is. Uh, tentatively slated for fall 2020. Um, we'll we'll see. You know, there there are some ongoing criminal investigations and lawsuits that are happening. The last year and a half of Stan's life was a real mess, and uh, so that might get pushed back based on information that starts coming so out. So insane! It's really nuts. You know better than most from having transcribed these interviews. It got real messy around the end. Weird, really. Real some of weird. the things, yeah. some of the, the the references that are made. I was like, I know it's not just like it's right not now? just like oh, you know, there was uh, somebody trying to get Stan's money. Like it, it got weirder than that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, those are those are the places you can find me. Abe, uh, this was such a delight. I oh, this really, was really great. appreciated it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luminaries, let me know. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a glowing encomium. Share it on your Instagram stories. Email it to your Aunt Joan. And help make this series bigger and better with every episode. Thank you for listening, and let's grow together. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.